You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. You guys, it looks like we might be getting movie theaters back in Los Angeles this week, and I am freaking ecstatic. The last movie I saw in theaters was The Invisible Man, which feels like a hundred years ago. Definitely itching to go back to the theater. Without further ado, this week we're covering the life and tragic death of Sal Minio the actor and former teen idol known as the Switchblade Kid. Cell's talent as an actor was noticed from an early age, and he quickly rose to stardom in films like Rebel Without a Cause and Exodus. Unfortunately, the world never got the chance to see what else Sal was made of, as his life was cut short before the age of 40 in a West Hollywood alley. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Sal Minio was returning home from play rehearsal on the night of February 12, 1976. He parked his 1973 Duster in the designated carport spot at his West Hollywood apartment building. It had been a rough few years for the actor, but 1976 was looking like the year that would change everything. The play he was rehearsing, P.S. Your Cat is Dead, had already given him excellent reviews in a previous San Francisco production, and the play was gearing up to move to the Westwood Playhouse, which is now the Geffen Playhouse, a mere five miles from Sal's apartment. He was happier than he'd been in years. Sal stopped at home to change his clothes as he had plans to go out dancing with a friend that Thursday night. He got out of his car and in the alleyway, a mysterious figure jumped out from behind a trash can. Sal was attacked by the unknown assailant and when he called out for help, the stranger wounded him with a single stab to the heart. Sal Minio was born Salvatore Minio Jr. on January 10, 1939, in East Harlem, New York. His parents were coffin makers, his father an Italian immigrant, and his mother an Italian-American. Sal, known as Jr. to his family, was the third son of the couple, and his sister would round out the family six years later. Sal grew up primarily in the Bronx, where his family had moved when he was eight. He had a hard time making friends. Many of the neighborhood children were wary of the Minio kids due to the family's business. Acting called for Sal at a young age, first when a nun at the local Catholic school cast him as Jesus in a play. 
According to H. Paul Jeffers' book, Sal Minio, His Life, Murder, and Mystery, Sal didn't just memorize his lines. He also developed a full character profile to aid in his performance. When it was time to put on the show, the young boy's natural talent for acting was evident. For Sal, a lifelong love affair was born. Despite this, he had behavioral difficulties in school and was eventually tossed out for fighting and stealing. Soon after, Sal was scouted by a young theater agent, whom spotted him while he was waiting for his sister to get out of dance class. For $65 a week, Sal played a small part in the Broadway debut of The Rose Tattoo by Tennessee Williams. The part was one line long and opened the play. The young Sal would run on stage chasing a goat. The play was a massive hit and played on Broadway for years. Sal would play that role until he literally grew out of it. After a string of theater roles, Sal landed a part as a stand-in and understudy for Prince Chula Longhorn in the original production of The King and I, starring Yul Brenner, whom would go on to play the titular king in the film adaptation. Soon, Sal went from understudy to the leading part of The Crown Prince of Siam. Brenner would take Sal under his wing, and the actor's skill set quickly improved and expanded. Sal looked up to Yule, and a lifelong friendship was forged. Sal continued this role until the age of 15, when the show closed in 1954. Next came the television roles. At 16, Sal had small parts in shows like Janet Dean, Registered Nurse, and Omnibus. His older brother Mike had also caught the acting bug, and Sal accompanied him to his first audition. The role was for young Jeff Chandler in the film Six Bridges to Cross, starring Tony Curtis. At the audition, however, the director, upon seeing Sal, asked him to read for the part. Sal was eventually cast, his first film role. The film was partially shot outdoors in Boston, which caused a lot of the dialogue to be unusable, requiring Sal to fly out to Hollywood to complete ADR, automated dialogue replacement, where you basically re-record lines shot on location in a studio to match performance. While in Hollywood, Sal auditioned for another major film and successfully got a part in The Private War of Major Benson, opposite Charlton Heston. Sal was a successful working actor at the ripe old age of 16. Due to that young age, however, and his family still located in New York, Sal lived with the on-set teacher employed with Universal. Before he left Los Angeles to return to New York City, he had one more audition for Warner Brothers. The role was in a film starring newcomer James Dean and Natalie Wood called Rebel Without a Cause. Though he would originally audition to play one of the gangsters, Sal reminded the casting director of his own son and decided that Sal would be better suited as Plato, a troubled young man who has feelings for Dean's character Jim. This part would be the one that would define Sal in all other roles. It was also the role that gained him worldwide acclaim. Sal, Dean, and Natalie Wood became fast friends, but unfortunately for the trio, it was not a lengthy one. 
James Dean died in a car accident on September 30th, 1955, which shook Hollywood and devastated Sal. Natalie and Sal had flown to New York for the film's premiere, but Dean had delayed his departure to take place in an auto race. He had gotten into the accident en route. This turned the premiere of Rebel Without a Cause into a somber affair. Unfortunately, all three of these actors would have tragic, premature ends. We showed a film clip of uh, Rebel Without a Cause a few weeks ago. Why was that such a significant thing? I think mainly because until that film, teenagers really didn't have an identity. And because James Dean and Natalie Wood and myself were all very young, we played young people for the first time. It was also, by the way, that you could see the support starting to happen. I was the first teenager to be nominated for an Oscar and an Emmy in one year. And all of a sudden, the revolution started identification. This did something else for you that you may or may not have liked. It made you a singing idol momentarily. Do you remember the day that you came to Philadelphia in the mid-60s? I can he still hear the roar, yes. It was, it was an incredible day. I've never experienced anything like that we, since. We ran a contest. Why I would like to have a date with Sal Minio. got 40,000 entries in a day and a half. At the time of its release, Rebel Without a Cause was quite the controversial film. Teenage Rebellion was a huge fear among middle-class America, and the fact that a major Hollywood picture was coming out with something that depicted this degradation of traditional values made them believe that it would harm society as a whole. Despite those concerns, Rebel's depiction of teenage angst remains one of the most integral films on the topic even 65 years later. While still technically under the thumb of the Hayes Code, which was the code of ethics for American-made films, Rebel Without a Cause also depicted homosexual feelings between Sal's character and James Dean's. Sal's nuance and soulful portrayal of Plato would also earn him an Academy Award nomination, making him one of the youngest actors to be ever nominated at the time. While he wouldn't win the Oscar, Sal's career showed no sign of slowing down. He starred in four motion pictures in 1956, including the role of Angel in Giant, a role that James Dean had helped him procure, and in the film Crime in the Streets, which would be the film that would earn him the nickname The Switchblade Kid. With rock and roll conquering the airwaves, partially thanks to the popularity Rebel Without a Cause had been with teens, Sal started dabbling in music as well. Sal was already a teen idol, and it turned out he was a pretty popular musician too. Sal got a deal with Epic Records in 1957. His single, Start Movin' and My Direction, reached the number 9 position on the Billboard charts and earned him a gold disc. Altogether, he'd sell over a million records. At the end of the 50s, Sal was making $200,000 a year and was adored by the public at large. The film Exodus would earn Sal his second Oscar nomination, but despite an overall positively reviewed career, the actor was now getting too old to play the troubled young men characters that had made him famous. Privately, Sal could have not been more different than these troubled young men that he was portraying on screen. He was shy, gentle, and fun-loving. He was also close with his family, whom he relied on to help him make career choices, for better or worse. When Warner Brothers offered him a long-term contract, one that might have helped him transition from child roles to adult ones, his mother had him turn it down, believing he would make more money as a free agent. This was true in the short run, but certainly not in the long one. Uh, one of the 
Big, uh, hello? Yeah, speaking. Right, I'll hope. One of the lines that they always throw is that it's not my cup of tea, and I'll lay your odds, it's not her cup of tea. Hello? Yeah, Salmonio speaking. Uh, you did read the play? Right. And uh, how did you feel about it? <laughs> it's not your cup of tea. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. It's just that I've been hearing uh, from so many people that it's not their cup of tea, and uh, uh, I'm sorry that you're not going to be part of us. At 23 years old, Sal's career abruptly hit a wall. It was a time of great change in Hollywood, and Tinseltown was on the hunt for new faces, and Sal still looked like Play-Doh. On top of that, he looked quote-unquote ethnic, which limited his roles as well. As a result, the parts dried up. While he still managed to find work mostly on TV, it was in smaller and smaller roles that received little, if any, critical attention. When the going had been good, Sal had gotten used to a bit of an extravagant lifestyle. His mother also was acting as his money manager and was collecting a manager's salary from her son's account. She was also using his money for general upkeep for the rest of the family. Needless to say, she was not qualified for this position, and not only did she not save money, she also didn't ensure that her son was paying taxes. Now indebted to the IRS, amongst other things, and with the rules far and few between, Sal was forced to sell nearly all of his possessions to make ends meet, including a house he bought for his family back in New York. Despite this, he never gave up on acting. This period of his life became one of self-discovery, especially when it came to his sexuality. Despite the 60s being considered a period of loosey-goosey mentality, homosexuality was still considered taboo. Actors rarely came out, and if they did, they usually found themselves out of work not long after. Since his career was already affected, Sal made sure to keep his relationships, at least the ones with men, private. In 1965, Sal got a new agent who managed to get him into a couple of films, which helped with the financial issues, but did little to boost his fledgling career. One of the films, Who Killed Teddy Bear in 1965, in fact, did the opposite. Critics called the film, quote, everything from edgy to unwatchable. To this day, the film is quite derisive, but for Sal's career, it was poison. Sal had a couple further big payouts at this time, including films like Cheyenne Autumn, an experience he reportedly despised, and his last starring feature film role. Around this time, he did a string of retail therapy, including buying a new home and motorcycle, and before long, his finances were once again exhausted and the cycle repeated itself. Taking a break from acting, Sal stepped into the director's chair. He bought the rights to the play Fortune and Men's Eyes, a play about a man whom is assaulted in prison while serving time for a minor offense. He got the money to put on the production by gambling in Las Vegas. The lead was an 18-year-old Don Johnson, and at the producer's urging, Sal played the antagonist. In 1969, Los Angeles's run of the play did relatively well, especially by the gay community at the time, but was polarizing to everyone else. 
Sal's version of the play then opened in New York the same year, ended terribly. Both productions were closed in under a year. Keeping the lights on by appearing in a slew of television shows, three films, and an off-Broadway play, Sal's performances from this time were widely ignored by critics. Sal spent the early part of the 70s couch surfing to save money. He would shoot his last motion picture, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, around this time, and the film would release in 1971. He played the role of the chimpanzee Dr. Milo. There had been some talk about Sal's private life over the years, especially focusing on his sexual preferences. In 1972, Sal vaguely acknowledged his sexuality in an interview. In that interview, he stated that he had been with, quote, all men and a few chicks now and then. Rumored lovers included Peter Lawford and Rock Hudson. He had been in a six-year relationship with male actor Courtney Burr III. At the time of his death, he had just started dating commercial artist Michael Kaplan. In the police reports, both men would be described as, quote, close friends. Wink, wink. A few years later, in 1976, things were finally looking up for Sal. He was appearing in a production of the play P.S. Your Cat is Dead, a two-act play that had premiered in San Francisco to rave reviews before the production moved to Los Angeles. There was even talk that the play might head to Broadway, something Sal wholeheartedly wanted to do. He had also just signed on to direct a film for MGM. But on the night of February 12th, 1976, a scream rang out around 9.30 p.m. at 8569 Holloway Drive in West Hollywood. It was a nine-year-old girl that first heard the screams of, Oh my God, no, help me, please. She was not the only one to hear the screams for help, and several tenants of the building flooded the alleyway behind the building to find Sal Minio on the ground, curled into a ball. Sal's neighbor Roy tried to help him. Sal was profusely bleeding from an unseen chest wound. Roy attempted to give him mouth-to-mouth, but it was no use. In his statement to investigators, he would say that Sal gave a long exhale, and at that point he knew, quote, he was gone. At this time, the stretch of West Hollywood that Sal lived on was unincorporated. It is now a part of West Hollywood proper. But back then, this meant that the L.A. Sheriff's Department had jurisdiction. They arrived at 9.42 p.m., finding Sal halfway down the alley, being attended to by two good Samaritans. The homicide report would state that the blood coming from Sal's body would pool up to 10 feet away from it. At first, detectives worked with the theory that this was a robbery. This was quickly proved false as Sal's money, jewelry, and car keys were on the ground next to his body. When the ambulance arrived, Sal Minio was declared dead at 9.55 p.m. Several of the people who had come to Sal's aid reported to the officers that they saw a man fleeing the scene and described him as either Italian or Mexican and that he had jumped into a yellow Toyota. The nine-year-old reported she saw a white man with dark curly hair. Others saw a white man with long blonde hair. A sketch artist was deployed to the scene. No weapon was found. 
In the homicide report, Sal would be described as a, quote, half-assed movie star whom played a tortured punk in that florid locks, rebel without a cause. The coroner's report would show that Salminio's life was ended by a single stab wound to the heart. The tissue that was stabbed was removed from the actor's body to match the murder weapon if it were ever recovered. Sal's talk screen came back clear, but needle marks were found on various parts of his body. It was known that he experimented with LSD and marijuana. Some acquaintances even claimed he was a heavy cocaine user. But needles meant something even heavier. Could Sal have been killed over a drug deal gone wrong? A former boyfriend revealed the possible culprit for the needle marks, saying that Sal was receiving hormone injections to boost his libido. So, if the murder wasn't drug-related, then what? Upon a search of Sal's apartment, detectives found, quote, piles of homosexual pornography. Investigators then began fixating on the homosexual parts of Sal's life, believing that this must be a, quote, gay murder. Investigators certainly thought so and focused the search for Sal's killer to pretty much every gay entertainment professional in town. The police hit up every gay bar to get information on Sal's lifestyle, but found nothing too scandalous, at least from my liberal-leaning 2021 perspective. After the autopsy, Sal's body was flown to New York, where he was buried on February 17th. 250 people were inside the church, including his best friend Elliot Mintz, Desi Arnaz Jr., David Cassidy, Natalie Wood, Yul Brenner, Peter Lawford, Warren Beatty, Dennis Hopper, and Paul Newman. Fans and onlookers also kept vigil outside the church. Sal was laid next to his father, whom had died three years earlier. There would be no break in Sal's murder case for 16 months. After chasing fruitless leads for several months, mostly because they were fixated on the gay stuff, Sal's case was temporarily paused. But on April 26, 1977, a 19-year-old woman named Teresa Williams came forward with new evidence. She claimed that on the night of February 12, 1976, she was living with her then 19-year-old boyfriend, Lionel Williams, and his mother in Inglewood, a town southwest of Hollywood. Lionel had come home that night with a bloody shirt and told her that he'd, quote, just stabbed a dude with a hunting knife he'd purchased from Western Surplus. She also told police that Lionel's intention had been to rob Sal for money to fix their car. After Lionel had stabbed Sal, he successfully robbed another person somewhere later that night by pistol whipping them. Lionel then stashed the knife and changed his clothes to watch TV with his mother and girlfriend. According to Teresa, he told his mother to change the channel to see if he'd killed the dude in Hollywood. Lionel recognized the actor's face then as it was all over the news, reminding Teresa that they'd seen him on TV. Months later, he would brag about it to one of Teresa's teenage friends. He eventually came out brandishing the knife and declared that he wanted to have a seance. Lionel stabbed the knife into the floor, lit a candle, and placed it next to the knife. 
He made Teresa and her friends sit beside him. The three joined hands. Lionel called out to Salminio. He then claimed to have contacted Sal and told his fellow seance members that, quote, Salminio says, everybody take off your clothes. Teresa and La Sonia, the friend, refused. Lionel then told the spirit he believed he had conjured, quote, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I didn't know it was you. I didn't mean to do it. Later that night, Lionel threatened Teresa with the knife. They married two months later. Lionel wanted to make sure she could invoke spousal privilege if he was ever caught for the murder. Lissonia would later corroborate these statements to police. Teresa's statements were also backed up by polygraph. Three days after she got in touch with police, investigators drove her to the Western Surplus store and had her pick out a replica of the knife. When they brought it to the coroner, whom had removed the part of Sal's heart that had been stabbed and flash-frozen it for matching a murder weapon later on, the coroner managed to match the wound to the knife. Shortly after Teresa gave her statement to the police, she died by suicide. She left behind the two children she shared with Lionel Williams. On May 5th, police paid a visit to Lionel at the Calhoun City Jail, where the now 21-year-old was being held on bad check charges he'd made after fleeing Hollywood in the summer of 1976. He had returned to Los Angeles and then had been extradited from Los Angeles the day Teresa had come forward. When investigators sat down with him, he was visibly swirly when they brought up the murder of Salminio, wanting instead to complain about Teresa. Lionel also claimed that he'd overheard gang members talking about a hit on the actor due to a bad drug deal. Without concrete evidence, but definitely sure they got their man, police managed to tap his phone and correspondences within the prison, hoping to get lucky. It would be a deputy that overheard Lionel bragging about killing Sal to his fellow inmates. The wardens let the LAPD know, and Lionel Williams was extradited to Los Angeles to face murder charges on January 4th, 1978. He was formally charged on January 17, 1978, at the Beverly Hills Municipal Court. He pleaded not guilty to the murder, as well as 10 counts of robbery and one count of attempted robbery. Almost a year later, due to a series of delays, on January 9, 1979, the trial finally began. The prosecution's case hinged on the fact that the crime was premeditated, allowing them to seek the death penalty for the murder charges. They argued that Lionel lied in wait for Sal until his screams alerted his neighbors, foiling his attempts. In a panic, he stabbed Sal, hoping to shut him up. Additional evidence included the duplicate knife that coroner Dr. Noguchi, if that name is familiar, it's because he also performed Marilyn Monroe and Sharon Tate's autopsies, proved was a match for the stab wound in Sal's heart. The defense attempted to get their client off using the eyewitness testimonies of Sal's neighbors that night. They described a Caucasian or Italian or Mexican person. Lionel was African-American. One person had said the perpetrator had blonde hair. It certainly couldn't be Lionel, could it? Prosecution had an answer for this. At the time of the murder, Lionel had bleached his hair blonde and had lighter skin, evidence and photographs provided by the prosecution. He had also borrowed a 
a yellow Dodge Colt, which looked a lot like a Toyota from a dealership that morning. It was enough for a conviction in the eyes of the jury, and Lionel was found guilty of 10 out of the 11 counts, including second-degree murder of the death of Salmon and given 51 years to life. Salminio's killer had been brought to justice. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. It takes two seconds and it makes all the difference. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. This will allow me to keep making episodes as well as being able to acquire better equipment down the line. I've also got merch. Check that out in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the mysterious death of Thomas Ince. Did he die from stomach troubles like his death certificate says? Or was his actual cause of death something more sinister? The result of an extensive cover-up by his wealthy fellow revelers. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Young as we are Younger we both may be, we're going far, my love.